Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at updates from Ukraine, including concerning developments at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and we ask why Russia is burning millions of dollars worth of gas on the border with Finland, while Europe enters an energy crisis. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 26th of August, day 184. And today I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. The most important thing in the last 24 hours has been the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So there's been a lot of reporting on what's happening there. Let's try and make sense of it with the latest. Um, President Zelensky said this morning that shelling yesterday had caused fires in a nearby coal power station that then led to the disconnection of Zaporizhia from the grid. Uh, He said that backup generators ensured the supply, but we still don't think that Zaporizhia is connected to to the Ukrainian energy grid. Uh, President Zelensky said, quote, Russia has put Ukraine and all Europeans in a situation one step away from a radiation disaster, unquote. Other uh, world leaders have, have, have chimed in. President Macron said that there's no way that civil nuclear infrastructure uh, should be used as a tool of war. And the US State Department has uh, spoken as well. The spokesman, uh, Vedant Patel, said, quote, no country should turn a nuclear plant into an active war zone, and we oppose any Russian efforts to weaponize direct energy from the plant. Now, in response, TASS, that's the Russia's state news agency, has reported a, a Russian-installed official in, in the Zaporizhia area as saying that it was actually Ukraine. The Ukrainian forces broke the final power line. Um, I say that just well, just for giggles, really, because I, I don't believe it in the slightest. Um, 
Now, Energy Atom, the Ukrainian state energy operator, has said that all reactors are disconnected from the local grid. This was as of uh, six hours ago, 7 a.m. London time. I have to take my shoes off. Yeah, six hours ago. Um, however, the uh, severed power line has been restored. That's their quote, restored. And work is ongoing to, quote, prepare the connection, unquote, of two of the six reactors at the site. So we think it is offline we think it has got power to it so the immediate threat of it was the electrical systems and in particular the cooling systems are being uh, 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 faulting because of the the lack of electrical power we don't think that is what's happening at the moment but we do not think that there is power coming out of Zaporizhia into the Ukrainian grid. That's that's the latest as of now. Got a bit more news, but I'll just pause there to let you come back if you want to talk about um, Zaporizhia. If I could just jump in there, I think it's worth saying that we don't know exactly what the Russian strategy is around Zaporizhia, but we can certainly suggest, I think, two main hypotheses. The first is one that we've talked about considerably in the recent weeks, which is that Russia are seeking to be able to use Zaporizhia as a brokerage tool in future talks, that they hope to have control of the nuclear plant so that if there is some manoeuvre by Putin to try and outmanoeuvre the West and declare some sort of ceasefire, that him having control of this nuclear plant will give him certain perhaps strengths in those talks uh, or indeed can be used as a weapon to to threaten countries with. The other hypotheses, I suppose, should just be seen in a more military strategic sense, which is trying to shut off Ukrainian power supplies. One of the most noteworthy, I think, elements of the conflict is whilst Ukraine, of course, has been suffering considerably in terms of infrastructure, so in no way am I trying to, trying to downplay that, and all the time there are power cuts, power outages, etc., is that it has not been completely severed from either the internet or from electricity. And indeed, this may well be a manoeuvre by Putin to try and do just that on the electricity front, which of course would have numerous advantages in a military sense. So I think those are two ways in which this uh, these movements in Zaporizhia could well be um, significant in the weeks ahead. Thanks, Francis. Dom, do you want to add anything more to that? Uh, or shall we move on with the other updates? Well, just briefly, I mean, it, it is, as Francis says, it's very, it's very unclear what, if any, strategy is going on here, whether or not Russia are just trying to threaten it for its own as as a threat in its own way or if it's any part of trying to push back against the the anticipated counteroffensive in the south from from Ukraine if they're at all suggesting well look you know if if you start if you start the heavy metal game down south then oh crikey we can't guarantee that this place will be safe i don't know if it's that if it's that considered that that thought through uh, or, or as i say this is just just a standalone action um so it's unclear what russia want to get out of this. But I mean, the, I reiterated, I mentioned yesterday, the UK Defence Intelligence update yesterday did have images of Russian tanks and other armoured vehicles within 60 metres of reactor number five at the plant. So it's it's clear that they are using it as a, as a military location, knowing that Ukraine will are not, are not going to fire on it. So they, they've militarised the site, they've militarised the 
issue of civil nuclear power, whether or not that's just for its own end or part of a wider wider strategy, I, I don't know. That, and that's all I'll, I'd add to that. Thanks, Tom. Can we move away uh, from Zafarija now and talk a little bit about what else is going on in Ukraine? Yeah, well, in a near, three other bits of news just to bring to people's attention. So Belarus President Lukashenko, he has said that, uh, that his country's fleet of ageing Su-24 uh, fighters. These are sort of 1970s era fighters, codenamed Fencer by NATO. He says they're going to be refitted to carry Russian nuclear missiles. Now, Belarus doesn't have nu- nuclear weapons of its own, we don't think, but it has an arrangement with Russia that it's prepared to host um, and now to to fit nu- nuclear, Russian nuclear weapons to its to its equipment. I mean, fine, great, whatever whatever you want. But I think it's really interesting that that. Lukashenko is making these statements every now and again. You know, we hear nothing and then suddenly, ah, we're going to put your nukes on our planes. And it's all sort of really sort of tub thumpy. I'm in your corner, Vlad. And actually, it's notable when he says things like this. It just I just remember how much dead air there is in between all these bellicose statements, because Belarus has really not come out very forcefully and supported Russia in this war, been really quite sort of if not backward leaning, then they're not leaping into the fray. Um, we know Russia has staged out of Belarus to push down into the north of Ukraine at the start of the war, and they've still got a lot of forces there. But you know, not the most staunch support you'd expect from possibly your 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 closest ally left in in the world. So when Lukashenko comes out with statements that he's going to put nukes on his Su-24s, it's like, yeah, brilliant. Okay, fine. So it's a, it's another statement. It's, it's utterly meaningless and just reiterates how little you've done to support Putin elsewhere. Um, separately, uh, German, this is a bit reported from um, Spiegel newspaper, uh, magazine in, in Germany saying uh, there's a number of, uh, it's thought there's a number of Russian spies on German training locations, including Grafenwehr, there's another one. I can only pronounce Grafenwehr. I, I, I don't know how to pronounce the other ones. That's why I keep saying Grafenwehr because I've been there and I know how to say it. And these are these are where we're training, and the, and the US in particular are training Ukrainians on our artillery systems um, and other other bits and pieces. But there's been a number of suspicious vehicles in the area and drones flown over those training areas, according to Spiegel. So it looks like, as we've discussed many many times on this pod, the, the Russian effort to find these supply lines. I mean, it's pretty obvious where the training areas are, but to keep an eye on what's going on there and then find the supply lines into Ukraine is an ongoing effort and then finally just worth noting uh, so Latvia today uh, toppled a, a, a massive sort of 80 meter Soviet monument I'm sounding all a bit you know GRU 123 meter spire but yeah 80 meter Soviet monument glorifying the Red Army's victory over Nazi Germany now this was this was built in 1985 before Latvian independence and um, I understand it, it's been a quite it's quite a controversial monument for what it stands not not so much what it stands for but the fact that it was it was soviet era um latvia's foreign minister edgar uh rinkovitz i'm sorry if i mispronounced your name uh he said on twitter that taking down the statue was quote closing another painful page of history and looking for a better future unquote now i'd be really interested to hear from any any um anyone listening but in particular uh, latvians listening about what what the significance is here because i just wonder if this is an unhelpful move um if we're trying to say that that we don't have a problem with the whole of Russia and all Russians, it's just the current crop of gangsters in charge that have led this country awry. I, I wonder if attacking something that that essentially glorifies the, the team effort against Nazi Germany is the right way to do it. And I wonder if 
I'm just waiting for the Russian spin to say, well, look, you know, if you're attacking something that that glorifies the United Front against Nazi Germany, that that means you must be on the side of Nazi Germany. I just wonder if this if this had to happen. And I say I'm looking for Latvian listeners to to DM us and message us on this. I'd be really interested to hear your opinions. If this didn't have to happen, I I just wonder if this is an unnecessary uh, fight to pick. But I think it's quite notable. I mean, there's very striking imagery. If you have a look at the Telegraph's website, you can see all the, the imagery of this thing, this thing falling. Um, huge, great, huge, great block, 80 meters falling, uh, smashing into the um, into the lake that surrounded it. And like I say, I just, I just wonder if this if this had to happen now, uh, or whether or not it's it's a, a offering a gift to to Russia on the information side about you know who who's against Nazi Germany here. I just offer that for thoughts, and uh, and that's the lot. Thanks, Tom. Francis, I know you have quite a few thoughts about this statue and the uh, the symbolic meaning of it coming down now. Yes. Well, I, first of all, just to echo what John was saying, I would really recommend that listeners watch the footage because until you've seen the footage, it's hard to appreciate just how huge this monument is. This isn't sort of a small provincial statue in a park somewhere uh, this is this is probably one of the biggest statues i've ever seen removed from the from the post-soviet era i mean it truly is enormous um, as as don was saying a, a, a 260 feet uh, tall um to echo don's point i think it would be fascinating to hear Latvian listeners' perspectives on this because there are two different perspectives on it, aren't there? On the one hand, you could say, well, this is a symbol of of an oppressive regime that was put up. I think it was put up in 1985. That, that you know, that, that it's, just, it's a symbol of, of, a, of an oppressive regime oppressing a, a, a people in a sense, where putting their imposing their ideology on a people, and thus uh, it, it's justified to be removed as history is reassessed. And of course, we've talked about that reassessment taking place as a consequence of the war already, how different countries in Europe have reassessed their own Soviet history um, behind the Iron Curtain, and indeed how certain assumptions about the Russians then and the Russians now are shifting. To to, to Dom's point, I think uh, this has been something that I think has been noticeable in recent months. We've actually not talked that much on the podcast about, which is you think back to the very beginning of the war, this was very much being framed by the Western leaders as Putin's war, as this not being a war against ordinary Russians, but something that uh, Putin's kleptocracy had declared on the world and were looking to... I suppose you'd say moderate Russians uh, to and his generals and those around him saying this is madness and needs to be stopped. There has been a noticeable shift, I think, in now the Russian state being hold, held responsible. And to Dom's point, there are dangers aligned with that because obviously uh, if there are moderates in Russia who are trying to work against this and their hand is weakened by any move such as this to... Um, to blame the whole of Russia and Russian history and, and the Red Army. I mean, the reality is, just to contextualise this, that, um, of course, without the Red Army, I think it's very much questionable whether the Nazi Germany would have been defeated in Europe. I mean, just to, to give the numbers here, I believe that it's something like... I I'm, 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 don't want to, to, to say the wrong figure, but it's, it's around half a million, I think, uh, casualties of the Allied powers and the Western theatre in the ni- post-1939-45. Um, uh, sort of but, of course, from the Russian perspective, we're talking millions. I think something about 11 million soldiers.
soldiers or something like that. So this is the astronomical numbers. And of course, you think about all of the battles on the Eastern Front that were fought that really changed the outcome of the war, whether you talk about Stalingrad, Kursk, Moscow. These were hugely significant for the future trajectory of the European continent. And I think that we should also remember as well that many of those uh, um, soldiers who were fighting were conscripted, who had no choice. You know, they're not all... Um, monsters as it were and 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 as, as as don was saying there is a danger here that by tarring all russians with the same brush that actually that plays into putin's hands yet on the other side of the coin i can totally understand as i say that if this is seen in latvia as a symbol of of oppression then uh then i can understand why one would want to topple it just in the same way that statues of lenin and stalin were infamously toppled um at the collapse of the soviet union um and i also think as well there's been some interesting remarks I've seen flying around of saying, you know, we're living in this era of statue toppling um, and trying to make comparisons with with what's been going on in Western countries. I think there are the you know it's a it's a very much a, a, a viable debate to be to be had. You know, speaking as a historian, of course, I always innately feel uncomfortable at the notion of statues being taken down. But as I say, there is this other side of the coin, which is you could argue that. Those statues that we're talking about in Western societies as being toppled or or uh, having you know been contextualised by new plaques and things like that, those were those were statues that were put up by democratic countries um, most of the time, or, or at least countries with a sort of liberal tradition. And that's something very different than countries that have an oppressive tradition and that are putting up statues as symbols of, in a sense, dominance, um, cultural or imperialist. Um, I think that we're not really talking about that when we're talking about sort of some of the statues that have been taken down in Britain, for instance. So I think there's a lot of nuance around this discussion. And as Don was saying, it'd be fascinating to hear Latvian li- listeners' perspective on that. But I think, as I say, if you're just looking at this in terms of the context of the war, then this will be a very, very effective propaganda from Putin's perspective because it is a monument about celebrating the Red Army's defeat of, of, of Nazism and fascism. And indeed, the whole way that Putin has framed this war is a battle against drug-addled Nazis, to quote his phrase. And so I think in that sense, there is there are cause for concern here. Thanks, Francis. Thank you, Dom. Just one thing to add, and I mean, I, I think I'd echo both of you in saying that it would be very interesting, and I think most important to hear from our Latvian listeners ab- about this, so do get in touch. Um, but one thought just to add to that is that I, I th- it's one thing looking back to, to history and seeing what these symbols and these statues might might mean looking back. But I would say, on the other hand, you know, Putin's been pretty open about uh, co-opting Soviet imagery in, in the invasion of Ukraine. I remember we, we remember some of the flags used in, in, in Mariupol from a few months ago. So I think from that perspective, you can certainly understand the Latvian reluctance and anger that the, the, the symbols in, your, in their own city or might reflect what's actually happening in, in Ukraine as well, that it's not just something that's a memorial of the past, but it's being used, as, uh, it's being used to, to frame the present as well. I don't know. I, just, I, I offer that up as, a, as maybe a, an extra separate thought. Um, can we move on and talk a bit about gas? There's been an interesting story um, about a, uh, a plant, a Russian uh, um, energy plant, burning off gas on the borders of Finland, um, which says quite a lot about uh, the energy crisis that Europe f- is facing over the next few months. Francis, you've been looking at this. Would you like to talk us through it? Yes, well, an interesting evolution of a point that we've made on the podcast before. We now understand that Russia is burning 10 million 
dollars so that's 8.4 million pounds of gas a day at the plant near its bo- near the border with Finland according to analysis and experts are saying that the release of this gas which obviously would previously have been exported to Europe is really unprecedented never seen scenes like this before indeed you're able to see it on very vividly on satellite imagery which I was looking at this morning and of course it's thought that this is a release of uh, a result of the trade embargo and the simple fact that Russia is unable to to procure spare parts to contain the gas. Now, of course, this is significant in terms of Russia losing uh, um, money um, that, could, that, that's, that, that could have been going to paying for this, although obviously given the price increase, they're probably recouping some of that. But the other side of this as well is just connected with what I was talking about as the final thought yesterday, which is just the environmental impact of this war. I mean, when you're losing that much amount of gas constantly and consistently for weeks on end, uh, as I say, that amount of of of, um, of gas is going to be into the atmosphere, is, is going to be having an impact. And we don't know what that impact is, but it is not a good thing, I think it's fair to say. And I just wanted to frame it as an example of where as much as we can look at this in terms of military and energy strategy as one of the many fronts on the war, there's also another side to this, another way of thinking about this, which is something that we are always we are all being affected by. That not everything can be seen just purely in the context of 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 broader strategy or Russian actions or Ukrainian actions. This is something that actually can be looked at through a wider lens and I think will be a cause of of concern amongst many. Very good. Francis, would you talk us through a little bit just that some of the headlines we've been seeing today in the UK. I mean, it's felt pretty apocalyptic when it comes to energy um, price rises for for British uh, households. Um, I think we should just do a few minutes on this because I realise lots of our listeners outside Europe, from the US, from from New Zealand, from Australia, who don't aren't necessarily facing uh, the same pressures when it comes to when it comes to energy. And since this will be such a, a big front of the of the uh, of the conflict in the next few months, it might be good just to give a, a brief um, summation of what that looks like in the United Kingdom. Sure. Well, to put it mildly, it's incredibly severe. Um, This morning, some commentators have been calling it catastrophic. Um, Others are saying that it is simply untenable um, and the government will be forced to intervene very swiftly. Of course, we're awaiting there to be a new prime minister uh, on the 5th of September. Some are saying that actually that's too late, but I think we will end up waiting for that. And if it is Liz Truss, who becomes the next prime minister, I think we can expect almost immediately her to be declaring some kind of intervention to support people because the numbers that we are talking about are truly enormous. So just to put this into some perspective, these are it's double di- digit inflation for another year as energy bills jump 80%. So, you know, these are extraordinary numbers that we are talking about here and we've got this system of energy price caps so to try and stop the the market completely dictating everything but those caps have just been increasing incrementally now uh, every few weeks and it's reached the point where people will not be able to afford to feed their uh, homes with energy and as a consequence of course this is before we even get into the winter 
phase of uh, the year. And once we do, I think that's when uh, it will really, really focus minds. At the moment, of course, so much of this is hypothetical because the weather is very good here at the moment. I mean, in fact, um, probably the best summer I can remember for many, many years, degrees of 30 degrees centigrade, um, which is just extraordinary for us quite regularly. Um, But when the tide turns, it's going to hit very, very hard indeed. And of course, Putin is counting on that. I think it's fair to say this has been his strategy all along is the anticipation that this will really, really hit Europe in a way that will be untenable. And at that very moment, he may well dangle the carrot of some kind of peace deal. And and that may well appear very satisfying. And indeed, what pays into this is Boris Johnson's remarks yesterday, who said that it was effectively a siren call to British people, but as well uh, as, as, as European people to say, you know, that the Ukrainians are paying for this in blood. We may have increased energy prices, but it's it's the much border issue here um, is, is, is the most important one uh, about the future of what world we want to live in, whether that's one where uh, it, borders can be redrawn by force or not. Again, the challenge for that is going to be p- for European democratic leaders to persuade the populations of their respective countries that the sacrifice is indeed worth it. There are many political figures waiting in the wings, whether that be in Italy, in France, elsewhere, who are, I think, have a different perspective on this and will be potentially making gains in future democratic elections on the back of just the severe cost of living crisis. It doesn't necessarily need to be influenced by their views on Putin, but inevitably when a government is suffering or is is, is enforcing these kind of bills on a population, then, then you're inevitably going to lose votes, I'm afraid. And it's going to be a real challenge for that. Of course, the benefit if Liz Truss becomes prime minister here in the UK is that she is the foreign secretary, excuse me, she is the foreign he- secretary and she has been incredibly hawkish on the matter of Ukraine. I think it's very fair to say that her stance uh, will will remain solid and firm on that. And as a consequence, she will be be willing to persuade the British public of that. Will we see that elsewhere? I'm not sure we will to the same degree. But be under no illusions, things are very bad in Britain and are going to get a lot, lot worse um, in the weeks and months ahead. And it is all a consequence of... Uh, of, of the European general reliance on Russian energy. And Britain is by no, no far uh, the, the worst affected by this. But so if you imagine how bad it is here in Britain, just imagine how bad it could get in, in Germany if things continue. Um, they're obviously doing their best to wean themselves off of Russian dependency as we speak. But nonetheless, it's still a very a, a huge task to happen in a short sp- space of time. And and I think uh, it's going to be a really challenging winter. If I could just add here, and I've got to say straight up, I'm no energy uh, correspondent here. I'm not going to get the uh, the correct volumes of uh, supply and all the rest of it. So so please forgive me that. But I just wonder, and Francis, you might be able to offer uh, some help here. Britain, I think we get a lot of our a lot of our energy from Qatar in terms of liquefied natural gas into Milford Haven on the south coast of Wales. Um, now, I was I was with the Royal Navy yesterday, as you as you may have heard, being being bounced around and made to feel very ill indeed. Um, but they were saying to me that that actually they are they're working on plans at the moment. I'm going to try and do this as a story, and I'm going to do this as a story. I see there's some journalists, you know, in there. Very, very grateful to have you listening, but this is my story. Please don't scoop me. Um, but I've I've heard that the Royal Navy are are have been asked by Qatar to supply some help. Um, 
in relation to the World Cup, the the world, the, the football, um, the soccer football World Cup coming up later this year. Qatar have asked for help from the from the Royal Navy in in, in some niche capabilities that they are the world leaders in. And I just wonder if there was any leverage at all in that in asking for a kind of quid pro quo to get Qatar to increase the supply of energy to to Britain and elsewhere. Um, whether or not that would be either possible or or just uh, just a drop in the ocean, or if, if, if this is how, not how international diplomacy works and it's just the, the market. But it, it does seem odd that if, if this is a um, being impacting the world to, a, to an international, on an international and global level, that we're not able to um, come up with a more considered solution. I, th- I think OPEC have, have increased supply slightly, but uh, nothing like what is required in order to bring the, the prices down. Um, I've got probably most of that wrong, but Francis, if, if you're able to, to, to mash any of those words together and come up with some sense, I'd be really interested in your thoughts. No, I don't think you have, Dom, at all, actually. And I completely agree with you that I don't think there has been enough uh, forward planning and enough urgency on this across Europe. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is part of the problem of the global marketplace. And when you don't have energy security is that you are only ever as strong as your weakest link. And as we've talked about so many times, there are a lot of weak links in the chain in in Europe, whether that be Germany or Italy or others. And we all feel the impact of that. Um, now, I'm not saying that we that, that, that countries are necessarily not adapting accordingly, as I say, Germany really is. But we are paying the price, literal and metaphorical, of decades of decision making, naive decision making by uh, the European political elite. Um, And so that's absolutely true. Just on your point, though, about um, energy and how to improve the situation, there are a lot of conversations that are taking place. But these things take, obviously, a lot of time. It's extraordinarily expensive. And I think I'm right in saying that a shipment of Australian uh, gas arrived uh, here in Britain last week. Um, I'd need to read more into that. So clearly, we are calling on on our allies and our friends to assist on this. But as I say, it's expensive, it's time consuming. And you're really what you're effectively asking of a whole huge market is to change its entire philosophy in a matter of months that's been built up over 30 years. It just isn't feasible to happen in the time span that is, I think, being talked about. Um, And so I think we are facing Certainly a year of this, maybe even two years if the worst case estimates are, um, are come to pass. So this is a major, major issue, perhaps the biggest issue, certainly cost of living is generally, that democratic Western societies are going to face. And it's going to be a, a staring contest between Russia and between the West and just to who blinks first on continuing the, the 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 war as it is currently being fought. Russia is relying on Western countries that are supporting, whether it be financially or militarily, Ukraine to blink first. We, uh, the Western powers, are still trying to persuade populations um, to continue the fight and uh, for Russia to blink first and to realise that, that the West is committed to the long haul. Now, of course, the benefit that the West has is that there are more countries and, of course, there will be a lot of negotiations taking place to try and improve and share energy. And as I say, that is taking place. Um, but, and, of course, there is also the United States. 
which uh, is obviously less impacted by this because of their own energy security and everything else. So that's that's a huge benefit here. But as I say, when you're looking at these kind of numbers, when you're literally saying that people will not be able to afford to heat their homes, that will, unfortunately and tragically, no doubt trump in the minds of many, many people the concerns of, of what is happening in a faraway country. It shouldn't, but it will. And that is the, the problem that, that the, the Western political leadership will have to tackle in in the weeks and months ahead and are they really sensitive to this enough and the immensity of the challenge winter is a long a long season in europe i don't know i'm not sure but it should be at the forefront of their minds thank you francis and thank you dom for that i thought it would would be good actually to do just do a good 10 minutes on that just to give to our listeners outside of europe just a sense of how this is playing out on the ground here um, to show you, as I think Francis has done rather wonderfully, the sort of the thought processes that uh, people are going to be uh, thinking, th- thinking through, thinking how this is going to affect their ability to pay for their heat, their ability to pay for food, feed their family, etc. And as Francis said, you know, it, sh- it shouldn't impact support for Ukraine, but th- that is exactly the strategic thing that, that, that Vladimir Putin is, is banking on. Um, there's just one more update I think we should talk about, unless um, Dom and Francis have anything else. And this is, f- this is about the Officials from Turkey, Finland and Sweden who are expected to meet to discuss some security concerns. Um, Francis, you've put this into our into our shared document of things to talk about. Um, what's significant about this? Well, yes, there's just an interesting development in, in terms of Turkey generally. I've obviously spoken a lot about them this week. As part of NATO um, being expanded and including Finland and Sweden, there was this, listeners will, will remember that Turkey put up a, a stumbling block there and said that they had a lot of concern security-wise in terms of uh, certain individuals that were supported by those two countries who they saw as enemies of the Turkish uh, state and sort of I think they called them as harboring terrorists. And so they have met at an undisclosed location today to discuss these concerns, which, as I say, were raised as a precondition of the two Nordic countries uh, joining the NATO military alliance. And of course, we will see what the impact of that is in due course. Just one other thing on Turkey. I mentioned earlier in the week this this sort of small story uh, that, that wasn't really picked up, but I thought was interesting which was about Russia trying to uh, close access, I think it was the, the, the Moscow exchange, to Western currencies, but keeping them open to certain others, whether it be uh, China and indeed Turkey. Um, and it seems that this has been uh, sort of picked up. There's been more dialogue around this issue. Um, as uh, Turkey's finance minister said today that businesses shouldn't be concerned by the threat of sanctions that Washington warns will follow if they do business with sanctioned Russians. So the US Deputy uh, Secretary of the Treasury um, has warned that Turkish banks and companies could face secondary sanctions if they cooperate with Russians sanctioned over the invasion of Ukraine. Turkey, however, who has obviously tried to stay broadly uh, neutral and has refused to join in in the international sanctions, although they have uh, proactively helped Ukraine, I would argue, in other ways, um, 
has has uh, clearly not been as uh, strong on this and uh, they are now trying to rebut the the claims that they would face sanctions and he said that the warning should not cause concern in our business circles turkey is one of the most important political and economic power centers in the world so i just draw attention to this which is relatively minor in the grand scheme as another example of where there are tensions playing out within the nato alliance turkey as I say, a traditional historical role of brokering and acting as in, in the interests of both the, the East and the West, and it's continuing to do that. But obviously, it's not a good look for Turkey if it continues to uh, be trading with Russia and Russian sanctioned uh, individuals sanctioned from Russia, um, uh, despite what's going on uh, in the war. But nonetheless, at the same time, I don't think it should be seen as a trend of them necessarily going more into rocket Russia's pocket or anything like that because of the remarks that were made by President Erdogan earlier this week uh, around uh, the future of Crimea. And he was very, very strong on saying that Crimea must be returned to Ukraine. So I don't mention it to register a trend, more just an observation of the tensions that are playing out in real time within the NATO alliance. Brilliant stuff. Um, well, Dom Nichols, you've been on the road the past few days. Um, it's good to have you back in, in the studio here. Um, what are your final thoughts for our listeners? What should they be thinking of as we go into the weekend? Well, it's got to be back onto the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. We started the episode today talking about it. That That is of critical concern right now. We've got to keep your eyes there. It is unclear exactly what's happening. We had a good stab at it when we started today based on the latest news that we have. But it is very murky. Um, we still don't know exactly what the state of the reactors are, if they're online or not. And this, um, the, the, the claims, which I don't believe for a moment from Russia, that uh, that Ukraine is taking action. Um, I mean, we just need to just need to keep an eye on that because of the the narrative that it is that it is building. If there's any, as we've discussed in the past, any possibility of a false flag attack. I mean, that will obviously be preceded by a ramping up of the rhetoric blaming Ukraine for, for a lot of action. So whilst I don't think Ukraine are taking any military action near the plant or near any of the, the associated coal plant uh, that is providing the, a lot of the electrical power, uh, just keep an eye on the on the rhetoric and the narrative from Russia um, and keep an eye on on the on statements out of the, the state um the state uh, power agency and uh, and from Ukrainian state media because it will be it will be important whichever way this goes. You've, you've seen, as I said, the world leaders Macron and you've got uh, messages from the State Department, U.S. State Department about this issue of of involving civil nuclear power now as a as a tool of war. So whichever way this goes, it it, it is setting precedents. We still haven't got the um, International Atomic Energy Agency personnel on the ground there to be able to to see quite how safe it is so it is a very very fragile um, issue a lot of eyes on it but that that still doesn't mean that we have absolute clarity about what's going on so you've got to keep an eye on that over the weekend it could be very very serious indeed thank you very much dom uh francis sternley would you like the final words well thank you david Regular listeners will be aware that I've been quite sensitive to an issue that we just don't know much about at present, but is nonetheless occasionally re-emerging as a story, which is the deported people who have been forced by Russia to leave Ukraine and in many cases have been sent to unknown locations in Russia itself. And uh, I've been reading an interesting story today um, around the... Uh, the US State Department and Yale 
who have identified 21 detention sites in Russian controlled territory. The researchers have said that the these sites in the Donetsk region of eastern Ukraine are used to detain, interrogate and deport civilians and prisoners of war in ways that clearly violate humanitarian law. There are even signs pointing to possible mass graves in some areas. And it would appear, according to the research, that these sites are part of a, quote, filtration system used for processing detainees and prisoners. They've been examining commercial satellite imagery and open source information. And of course, they've managed to speak to a few people, but not many who may have been through this uh, this process. And so it's the very beginning, I think, of of real in-depth studies into what has been going on, what it continues to go on. And I just wanted to flag this because you hear the language here and what has been going on and some of the numbers involved who may have been through through these systems are, are really astronomically high. And I just think that this is going to be a huge story one day, uh, whether it be something that we hear more about in the months hence, or whether it will be something that we hear about in the years after the war. I don't know. But this feels like a big, big story. And when we find out more about what has been going on in these places, I think it will be absolutely chilling. And people will say, how on earth was this allowed to go on on European soil for so long and so uncommented upon? So in a small way, I just wanted to bring that up because I think there has been a lot of silence on this issue through no fault necessarily of, of, of the media's own because we just don't know much. But when we do know something, I think it's important we talk about it. So that's my final thoughts of today. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world ukraine the latest is produced by louisa wells and giles gear and today on twitter ruby klein planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. 
ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.